This is the March session, 2023, the third full talk. Homage to all teachers who have pointed out the possibility of nirvana, peace, authentic mystery beyond. Homage to all the teachers giving the lesson of the futility, pain, and narrowness of ordinary self-grasping mind. Homage to companions vigilant and steadfast in plugging into wisdom. Homage to plant and animal companions, their lives offerings of nourishment, giving the lesson of simplicity of being. Homage to subtle forces and energies protecting and blessing our meditations, like we invoke at Oryuki. I am the universe, but I am not. Homage to the body of five elements, a play of earth and sky and stars, a play too intimate to have room for a separate self designated me. I am the universe, but I am not. Homage to Buddha nature that is not my mind, nor other than it. Body-mind of all sound, sounding body-mind, like sounds heard in a dream, made only of dream, transparent, unbound, and free. I am not, but I am the universe. Therefore, homage to bodhicitta, heart-aching resonance for all beings, and the love that is wisdom's spontaneous act. So I'm going to continue with the uh, three mystic doors of liberation. I talked last week about wishlessness, complaintlessness, wantlessness, not wanting a little more extra special sauce-ness. Today I want to talk about signlessness. And it's not like um, a road that you wish there was a stop sign but there isn't one, but it is kind of like that as well. Signlessness. There is a Zen saying, name the color, blind the eye. We could just sit with that all week. Name the sound, deafen the ear. Name the color, blind the eye. So with signlessness, we could say we're working with naked hearing. It's a helpful distinction that there's discriminating mind. Someone told me it's this part of the brain up here. Discriminates. It has to do that. If it didn't do that, you might not know an open door from a closed door or a tomato from an apple. difference between discriminating mind, which is operating, not operating. There are states where it just ceases to operate. We call those non-conceptual stillness. That's nice to touch. It has its value. But that's operating, and yet stillness hears. 
It's almost as if there's like two things going on. There's just some pollution. Of course, that's just a matter of view, but let's call it pollution. But then there's the clear sky. The sky never is polluted. Pollution is polluted. So we're teasing those apart even though they're intermixed. Yeah? And so that's what we mean by naked hearing is it is simply so. Namelessness. Thought-free. Thought-free is not the same as there not being a thought, but the naked hearing is free of the thought because it's just... It's just so. So that has a serenity and an intimacy. And then also, there's a sense of meaning-freeness. You're free of meaning. Dharma invites us to be free of meaning among, among meanings. One of its meanings is to be free of meaning. It's not meaningless, it's free of meaning. In the world, in media, in conversation, all the time, and this really surprises me, there's so many things that pop up my phone that I never asked for, I swear. I swear I didn't ask this or that news outlet to tell me what to think about a movie or a political candidate or this or that issue, but it does. Somebody in here knows how to turn that off. In the world, in media, in conversation, all the time we're hearing words that excite or depress. All the time we're being given the opium of hope and fear. Yeah, have you realized speech as mantra? Somebody could say something utterly untrue right now and the room would empty out. And of the magic of words, often an unhelpful magic. But in this signless, naked hearing, Birdsong, rain, guitar strum, they sell no such intoxicants. I think it would be a tragedy if human beings understood what birds were saying to each other. That would be the worst thing. There was some poet who said, uh, to me, the song of birds is evidence of heaven. So we're refraining from the intoxicant of naming and the intoxicant of meaning. And then the, the essence of experience is is tasted. Whether it's bird song, rain, or guitar strum, it's, it's the same essence. But strangely, the words in the mind, the labels, they do get in the way. 
I never have understood that, but they do. So we could say unfiltered. We're practicing an unfiltered listening. An interesting thing with um, Dharma is that when you purify one sense, if you'll indulge me the word purity, if you purify one sense, all the other senses begin to get purified. The sense organs are not considered um, ultimately distinct. It's a single light that is fract- um, f- refracted through all the senses. You could try listening to that rain with your eyes. That's a good practice. So unfiltered, but even without the word thought, rain, for example, subtle conception can be there. The the object stays an object. It maintains its boundaries for us because of its, its familiarity. It's like familiarity breeds contempt. This is true in Dharma as well. But if we stay with the naked hearing long enough, eventually even that gives way into an unknowing. Objects with hard edges starve us of spiritual intimacy. That's what we're trying to, on a gross level, overcome, my teacher says, when we seek to make love with another human being. We're trying to overcome the objects with distinct edges. We long for that so much, to dissolve, to not be in this discrete dance of separate entities. Of course, we make ourselves into a defined object with hard edges. Every thought of I am comes with it, and I am not. Every thought of I am not comes with it, I am. We could talk about meditation in stages. And one stage is we are trying to just have attention and the object stay touching. Mind moves away, bring it back so they're touching. So there's a flow of hearing experience that's less choppy The choppiness is distraction. But at a certain point, attention and the object are no longer attention and an object, but they begin to melt into each other.
like lover and beloved in embrace. If you've seen some of the tantric imagery of the Buddha with the consort, they're interpenetrated. That is an emblem of how the universe is when we're not living in a place of hard-edged objects. Anusha spoke of the um, bringing the, the attitude of devotion, bhakti, into practice. Now, some people say you either can or can do, can't do that. You either have that disposition or you don't. And they say, if you're not a bhakti, then be a janani. Right? Take the path of, of meditation if you're not a, a bhakti, for example. But maybe it's just a matter of waking it up in our hearts. Here's a poem about the, the bhakti spirit of, in the spirit of bhakti. A child runs through a field of wildflowers. Their eyes fill with beauty. Another walks an open-air market, Saint Remy de Provence. The smell of olives and ripe melons fills her body with a joy, a joy untouched by word. When sense field and sense object meet in innocence, their union becomes the swelling forth of love. How do you know if they have met in innocence? There is silence. Silence pervades perception and brings with it mysterious benediction. Silence flowers. An invitation is heard, received, met, entered. All that before the word desire. We grow up. We become preoccupied. Preoccupation, always already occupied by that complicated business and bartering of attraction, aversion, and indifference. Mind's figurings are chaotic. Sense field and sense object meet in fretful concern. Odds are figured, interest is calculated. There is a strange forgetting within our desiring but also an odd remembrance, a longing. In the Himalayan mountains, there is a mythical great white swan who, when a bowl of milk and water is placed before her, can drink the milk and leave the water. This is a lot like drinking the naked hearing from stillness. I'm just leaving the discrimination. When a bowl of milk and water is placed before her, can drink the milk and leave the water. Our forgetting and remembrance are water and milk mixed. Forgetting and remembrance are not ideas, but alive entities. It's worth um, knowing that the word mindfulness in, I'm not sure if this is Sanskrit or Pali, is something like smrti. It means to recollect to remember. Forgetting and remembrance are not ideas, but alive entities. Desire and innocence, too. These are living forces. It's not so much that you are living them as much as they are living you. 
desire and innocence, forgetting and remembrance. But you have a secret power. You decide who gets fed. Longing's prayer is the invitation of innocence. Desire's demand closes doors. Desire claims that if you feed it, it will give you the keys to the kingdom of pleasure and glory. Innocence is shy and makes no claims. It perceives in tender silence. Mind's chaos accustoms itself to the noise of ceaseless conflicting desires. But it can also be trained. It wants to be. Mind's blah, blah, blah is a dog looking for a leash. That's a good one sitting here all these hours. Everything desire claims is delivered by innocence. Suppose that's an article of faith. Innocence, nakedness, using these words interchangeably. Everything desire claims is delivered by nakedness. The great work is a training in nakedness. So we're offering our attention. And from the heart mode of practice, this is not mere mechanical, mental skill building. That sounds so boring. And it can be that boring. But can we see attention as love's essence? Many people say they desire to be seen. To be seen means someone's attention is there, robust enough so that one feels that seeing. Can we see our attention as love's essence? Can we love the world outside of our thinking? You know, in accord with what Anusha said, we are all bhakta, but we are bhaktas of our own inner dialogue. We place flowers at the feet of our inner critic. We make offerings at the altar of what about me? Can we love the world outside of our own thinking? Can we see that to love sound is to attend to it devotedly without demand? Can we feel that this moment is the universe? Nobody has anything else. Can we feel that this moment is the universe? The universe expresses as sound. And to be in loved with sound is to be in loved with the universe. It's an act of devotion. This is all the universe there is. But to love universe truly is to truly be a bhakta because this is a beloved that cannot be grasped, stabilized, or manipulated. 
one of the things that is celebrated about meditating on sound is it is the phenomena that most reveals impermanence. It's always fading away, the poignancy of music. This beauty that as soon as it hits the air is gone. So as we're listening, we're getting deep instruction on transience. Every sound is saying and teaching this. You can investigate if you are truly present. Is there even a sound? If you're truly present without any clinging, without any trying to hold on to the experience. Traditionally, it's said that stable awareness, aware of transiency, can then open to something deeper. There's a famous Chan poet named Sushi. And Sushi had practiced for a very long time as a layperson and had a lot of devotion for nature, spent a lot of time meditating in the mountains and the forests, and really just liked to be, be in the raw elements when they practiced. And Sushi practiced for so long, but somehow sincerely, uh, but never came to awakening. That's an interesting thing because people can practice sincerely for a while, but sometimes they decide, I didn't really get what I want, so I'm not going to really do that much anymore. an interruption in bhakti, huh? That's like agreeing to love someone and then deciding you don't want to when you don't like their mood that day. Well, we do that. It's reflected everywhere. Anyways, one um, morning, Sushi was awakened by the sound of um, the river as he walked outside of his hut and composed this famous, famous poem. The voices of the river valley are the Buddha's wide and long tongue. The form of the mountains are nothing other than her pure body. Throughout the night, 84,000 verses. That is, the direct teaching is present in every sound. We have to listen without ears, and we can hear it in every sound. Throughout the night, 84,000 verses, that's um, said to be the amount of sutra teachings there are. On another day, how could I share this with others? 
The voices of the river valley are the Buddha's wide and long tongue. The form of the mountains are nothing other than her pure body. Through the night, 84,000 verses. On another day, how can I share this with others? So as you know, I like to nerd out a little bit, get a little technical on meditation things. It might be some way I can be um, useful rather than just making noise up here. So something that can happen is that we get stuck in an ear-centered hearing. We're sitting here and we're sincerely making our effort and we kind of have this, if we were to draw a cartoon, it'd be like someone like this with beams going out of their ears in all directions. We're trying to shoot our hearing beams and hit those things out there. We want to let go of um, ear-centered hearing. How to let go of ear-centered hearing. Hear with the whole moment. Hear without this place and that place. Now, if our meditation is sort of um, skull-bound, like we feel like we're meditating from our head, then one simple antidote is that we're, we need to include more of the body so that the whole body becomes an ear. When the whole body becomes an ear, then the whole moment can become an ear. Alert stillness doesn't reach out. See if you can notice the, the subtle sense that you are reaching out with your eyes, with your ears. If you walk by the tea table, you can watch your arms start to reach out. That's what like human beings are. We're just like these desire that got these various organs with which it could reach out. Reach out and touch someone. But stillness hears without reaching out. It's not right to say sound comes to you because intimate hearing is right on the spot. This could feel like a kind of just softening, a strain, an effort that might have been there that doesn't need to be there. It could be felt as trust exactly where you sit. Is the embrace of beloved and lover. Dogen Zenji said, hearing sounds with the whole body and mind, one knows them intimately. In our translation that we sometimes chant, it says, understands them intimately, but that's a weird, that's, it's not about understanding. in the ordinary sense, hearing sounds with the whole body-mind. So sometimes we do a kind of listening practice where we have the slider, let's say here's a slider, I'm not doing that Hogan essence thing. 
Although I would love to just get up here and go, the essence of all teachings. This is a slider. And in listening practice, over here is um, me, and over here is sound. Often we listen with 70 or 80% attention on me and 20% on sound. We want to preserve our self-concern. We want to hang on to um, the territory. We're so afraid if we don't monitor this thing for a few moments that something bad's going to happen to it. It's interesting, we go to sleep every night in a kind of deep trust where we let go of, we let go of uh, concern for this. So we want to move the slider of absorption ratio to more and more, let's say maybe we can get to 60% sound, 40% me. I don't mean a bifurcation of I'm focused and now I'm thinking about myself. I mean transferring attention, fully devoting attention so much to sound that you forget this. Take it to 85%, take it to 90, take it to 95% and then something else becomes possible. Self-centeredness has to be sacrificed. That's what Zen is about. To give up being at the center of experience. You might know this um, lovely poem by Li Bai. I wish all poems were this exquisite and, and short. This is called Zazen on Qing Ting Mountain. Qing Ting Mountain by Li Bai. The birds have vanished down the sky. Now the last cloud drains away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. The birds have vanished down the sky. Now the last cloud drains away. We sit together, the rain and me, until only the rain remains. Kohen Yamada, who is uh, in the family tree, Japanese Zen Roshi, said the practice of Zen is forgetting the self in the act of uniting with something. Practice of Zen is forgetting the self in the act of uniting with something. If that doesn't sound like devotion, I don't know what does. So if one's doing breath practice, we say, become the breath. If you're working with a koan, become the koan. One of the first instructions I got when I went to a Zen monastery was when you walk, just walk. When you sweep, just sweep. Become the walking, become the sweeping. When you wash the dishes, just become the washing of dishes. It is not Zen Buddhism to develop a spectator awareness that mindfully observes oneself. That is not Zen Buddhism. Sometimes that's a useful skill. But our culture has already developed this witnessing rational self that is detached from experience watching things. This is not Zen. 
The practice of Zen is forgetting the self in the act of uniting with something. So it gets a little edgy in this listening. We have to give up our territory. But that's only scary for fear. Fear is afraid of that, but the act, the reality of that is not scary. It's almost impossible to imagine Let me rephrase that. It's difficult to conceive that there can be no separate self and many of the functions that we rely on day to day could happen. And so we hear the teaching, but we actually doubt it. We say, well, that can't be that there's no self because I'm always making choices. But mind's function of volition and choice is simply mind's function of volition and choice. A mushroom doesn't have a self, but it emits spores. Plant doesn't have a self, but it grows towards light. There's so many obvious phenomena, there's no separate thing in there kind of at the controls that function beautifully and perfectly and wondrously and are fully alive, but there's no self. Hearing does not imply a hearer. Hearing does not imply that there is a you that is receiving sound. That's just like the echo of the discriminating mind. That's the, that's the making of the sense of the self. It's all made of language. Silent and serene, forgetting words, bright clarity appears before you. Bright clarity hears, not a self. We're fooled by language. Language fools itself. Do you know the Bahia Sutta? Yay, I'm going to share with you the Bahia Sutta. So this is from the Pali Canon. Pali Canon were a certain stream of the Buddha's teachings that, I don't know, 500 years after the Buddha passed on, they were orally passed on, but they were finally written down this stream, and they became called the Pali Canon. So I'll just read this and comment on it. I have heard that on one occasion the Blessed One, the Buddha, was staying near Savati at Jetta's Grove, Anatta Pindika's monastery. It's kind of like if some you know, rich devotee in the West Hills of Portland said, you guys want to come practice in my backyard? I've got this really sweet meadow and trees. And they say, yeah. And so they're sponsored by this um, wealthy person. Buddha never said wealth was a bad thing. And on that occasion, Bahia of the bark cloth was living in Suparaka by the seashore. So this is a contemplative um, wearing tree bark as a robe. It's like hippie at the next level. <laughs> I just think that's so awesome. 
<laughs> I really think that's awesome. Bahia of the bark cloth was living in Suparaka by the seashore. He was worshipped, revered, honored, venerated, and given homage, a recipient of robes, alms, food, lodgings, and medicinal requisites for the sick. It shows just how profound a culture India is. I can't say is, was. Everything's mixed up. Let's say it's a profound culture. That people who just wanted to practice the spiritual life, if they were sincere, then generosity would come their way. You could imagine in our world if there was a lady sitting all day and night in a robe made of leaves and bark on the beach at the coast, someone would probably call the cops. <laughs> it's funny, but, but sad. You know, our culture, you could imagine she's deep in samadhi and then some Joe Schmo on Instagram is telling you all these profound things he stole from Lao Tzu and this person's getting sent hundreds of dollars a day. Bahia was worshipped, revered, honored, venerated, and given homage, a recipient of robes, alms food, lodgings, and medicinal requisites for the sick. Then, when he was alone in seclusion, this line of thinking appeared to his awareness. Now, of those who in this world are arahants or have entered the path of arahantship, am I one? So an arahant is one whose heart has been purified of ignorance. There's no more greed, anger, or delusion left. They're just, they're just light inside, an arahant, like the Buddha. So this is beautiful, and it's a deep honesty. This person is sitting there practicing and wondering, am I free? Am I, am I even on the path to freedom? You know, equality, I don't know if it's named so much in the sutras and the teachings, but a quality of spiritual practice that's vital is deep honesty. So this person is, uh, the thought rises, has my practice been bearing fruits of freedom? If so, what are the factors that I can see? If it's not bearing fruit, why not? Yeah, so this is instructive. This is not a state of mind to not have. An important point is we, if we look back over a span of time, this question is meaningful. If we're checking moment by moment, it becomes an obstruction. Right? Do you understand that? If you practice for five years, let's say that's a good sample size, five years, and you reflect, have I changed? Is my mind developing in according with the teachings? Am I less reactive? All of those kind of markers that we might, at least on one level, get some sort of feedback about is the path leading to less self. But checking moment by moment is exactly an obstruction. It's uh, a, an elevated form of self Concern. So on one hand, we have to we go about this wisely. 
because we can go into autopilot and other kind of automatic modes of practice, not really being conscious. On the other hand, you have to let that go and just, as Kohen Yamada said, Zen is forgetting oneself through uniting with an object. So Bahia had this question come up in his mind. And the sutta continues, then a devata, and this is like a, a luminous being, uh, an incorporeal, um, sometimes considered angelic being, often they're very wise beings. Then a devata, who had once been a blood relative of Bahia, the bark cloth, the devata compassionate, desiring his welfare, knowing with her own awareness the line of thinking that had arisen in his awareness, went to him and in arrival said to him, You, Bahia, are neither an arahant, nor have you entered the path of arahantship. Ouch! Oh my God, I've been wearing bark for 20 years <laughs> and eating bad curry. Nothing has happened? I mean, this is a deva. This would come with some authority if some luminous hottie just came out of the, you know, weeds and <laughs> said, you, you, you don't get it. You don't even have the practice whereby you would become an arahant or even enter the path of arahantship. Now, they, they don't say how Ambahaya received this. Was he reactive? Was he like F you? Was he, did he puff himself up? The way the story follows, I think it really carried weight and this was a humble person. So his practice um, did bear fruit because he was humble enough to hear this deeply, as you'll hear. If we view this mythopoetically, and the Buddha's teachings are not mythopoetic, this is According to the Buddha, how reality is, there are different realms of existence. And if we are sensitive enough, we begin to perceive them. So this is not myth, as we like to think of it. But if we think about this mythopoetically, sincerity of practice and sincerity of inquiry calls forth a response. If our longing is strong enough, if we meet that longing, then the, the then stuff happens in the world to support that. The old 60s cliche, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And it's kind of the opposite too. When the teacher is ready, the student appears. So sincerity of practice, sincerity of inquiry calls forth response. So Bahia reached the limit of his own perspective. Again, how, what a beautiful thing to have practiced sincerely, enough so that other people recognized it and were willing to support your life. You know? And think about a country as, as large as India. I bet there were also um, people who had hardly anything to eat, who were working hard to get even something to eat, and this person's work as a contemplative was rewarded. So Bahia reached the limit of his own perspective. The forest lost for the tree.
It's in the place of helplessness and sometimes hopelessness that we can step into a new possibility. For me, in my practice, I've only been able to see how thick my pride was in hindsight. And that's painful to look back and go, oh, wow. My pride got in the way of me really learning from so-and-so or practicing in such and such a way. So in times of um, despair, especially if we have strength of practice, there actually may be a new avenue. So this Devata says, you don't even have the practice whereby you would become an arhant or even enter the path of arhantship, bro. And then Bahya says, then who in this world with its devas are arhants or have entered the path to arhantship? Where are the enlightened people? And the deva says, Bahya, there is a city in the northern country named Savati. There the blessed one, an arahant, rightly self-awakened is living now. He is truly an arahant and teaches the Dhamma leading to arahantship. Then Bahya, deeply chastened by the Deva, left Suparaka right then and in the space of one night went all the way to where the Blessed One was staying near Savati, Anathapandika's monastery. The footnote says that this was very far. So either this person, through the force of their longing, was able to just uh, travel great distances, overcome their physical limits, or he had magical powers. Probably the first one is more magical. Bahya, deeply chastened by the Devata, went to um, the Buddha's monastery. Now on that occasion, a large number of monks were doing walking meditation in the open air. He went to them and on arrival said, Where, venerable sirs, is the Blessed One, the Arahant, rightly self-awakened, now staying? Where is he? I want, to, I want to meet with him. We want to see that Blessed One, the Arahant, rightly self-awakened. So I guess the Deva came with him. Maybe he piggybacked on the Deva's back. If you were made of light, it would be a lot easier to, to travel. <laughs> We want to see that Blessed One, the Arahant, rightly self-awakened. And they said, the Blessed One has gone into town for alms. So the daily um, rounds to get food offering. So urgency is here. Urgency can be wisdom. Urgency and awareness of death come together. Some of the teachings say, think of yourself as a fish in an evaporating pool. It's that quality of uh, awareness that one needs to have in order to have the urgency to practice well. Think, okay, I'm 40, I'm 50, how many sessions could I possibly do left? If you factor in if you're raising kids, career, sleep, eating, entertainment, how much time is left to practice? 
death can come just like that. And it does. It does. So this person has um, urgency in their heart. It says, Bahia hurriedly leaves Jeddah's grove and entering Savati saw the Blessed One goings for alms in Savati. Serene and inspiring serene confidence, calming, his senses at peace, his mind at peace, having attained the utmost tranquility and poise, tamed, guarded, his senses restrained, a naga. Naga is a, is a dragon being, is a wisdom dragon, a wisdom dragon. Someone once told me they met Thich Nhat Hanh and just the vibes that he was giving off were just so profoundly uh, soothing to be around. So we can imagine the Buddha is someone like that. Bhaya, seeing him, approached the Blessed One and on reaching him, threw himself down with his head at the Blessed One's feet. That's a customary way that one would um, greet a guru or a teacher as you bow and you touch your head to their feet. A sign of reverence. And said, teach me the Dhamma, O Blessed One. Teach me the Dhamma, O Well-Gone One. That will be for my long-term welfare and bliss. Now, the Buddha must be able to feel such passion, such urgency, that, that there's a, a ripeness there in the person who wants to um, receive the teaching. When this was said, the Blessed One said to him, This is not the time, Bahia. We have entered the town for alms. A second time, Bahia said to the Blessed One, But it is hard to know for sure what dangers there may be for the Blessed One's life. Right? Do you love a teacher? Do you want to work with a teacher? You have no idea how long they're going to be available. You have no idea. It is hard to know for sure what dangers they may be for the Blessed One's life or what dangers there may be for mine. Teach me the Dhamma, O Blessed One. Teach me the Dhamma, O Well-Gone One. That will be for my long-term welfare and bliss. Second time the Blessed One said to him, This is not the time, Bahia. We have entered the town for alms. A third time. Bahia said to the Blessed One, but it is hard to know for sure what dangers there may be for the Blessed One's life or what dangers there may be for mine. Teach me the Dhamma, O Blessed One. Teach me the Dhamma, O One Well Gone. That will be for my long-term welfare and bliss. It's traditionally said that uh, an awakened one cannot refuse a thrice-asked sincere request for teaching. And so the Buddha stopped and said these uh, famous words. I'll read them twice. Then, Bahia, you should train yourself thus, in reference to the seen, only the seen, in reference to the heard, only the heard, in reference to the sensed, only the sensed, in cognition, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. When for you there will be only the seen in the seen, only the heard in the heard, only the sensed in the sense, and only the cognized in the cognized, then, Bahia, there is no you in connection to that. There is no you in connection with that. 
When there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. When there is you, no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This, just this, is the ending of stress. It's interesting because shikantaza is just sit, just. So maybe we have the origins long before Chan. Then, Bahia, you should train yourself thus, in reference to the seen, only the seen. In reference to the heard, only the heard. The sensed, only the sensed. The cognized, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. When for you there will only be the seen in reference to the seen, only the heard in the heard, and only the sensed in the sensed, then, Bahia, there is no you in connection with that. When there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of dukkha. Through hearing this brief explanation of the Dhamma from the Blessed One, the mind of Bahia of the bark cloth right then and there was released from outflows through lack of clinging. Having exhorted Bahia of the bark cloth with his brief explanation of the Dhamma, the Buddha left. So Bahia was liberated at these instructions. It's one of the not so abundant examples of sudden awakening in the, in the Pali canon. Of course, it's not so sudden because we don't know what was going on under that bark all those years on the seashore. Having exhorted Bahia with this brief explanation of the Dhamma, the Blessed One left. Now, not long after the Blessed One's departure, Bahia was attacked and killed by a cow with a young calf. And there's no um, detail about how that happened. Bahia was attacked and killed by a cow with a young calf. Then the Blessed One, having gone for alms in Savati after the meal, returning for his alms round with a large number of monks, saw that Bahia had died. On seeing him, he said to the monks, Take Bahia's body, monks, and placing it on a litter, carry it away, cremate it, and build him a memorial. Your companion in the holy life has died. As you say, Lord, the monks, placing Bahia's body, carrying it away, cremating it, and building him a memorial, went to the Blessed One. On arrival, having bowed down to him, sat to one side. As they were sitting there, they said to him, Bahia's body has been cremated, Lord, and his memorial has been built. What is his destination? What is his future state? So practitioners would often ask the Buddha when somebody died, um, what, according to their karma, what will their rebirth be? And he could tell them whatever it be. Sometimes he'd say, oh, they're going to the animal realm, they're going to the hell realm, they're going to be a human. He didn't really pull punches about that. What is his destination? What is his future state? Because an awakened one does not take rebirth. Or if they take rebirth, it's through the force of love. So the Buddha says, Monks, Bahia of the bark cloth was wise. He practiced the Dhamma in accordance with the Dhamma and did not pester me with issues related to the Dhamma. <laughs> Maybe this is the secret teaching here. Not pestering the Buddha is the instant enlightenment recipe. 
He practiced the Dhamma in accordance with the Dhamma and did not pester me with issues related to the Dhamma. Bahia of the bark cloth, monks, is totally unbound. Totally unbound. The five elements that make up the body, the aggregates of consciousness, they're not tethered to some energy of grasping. And so the body disintegrates and mind uh, is freed. So that's probably enough for this afternoon. Even in the midst of this soggy, wet environment, we're turning up the heat. And it's important to keep the heat turned up. The image of wanting to make a fire, get a fire started so that your later self does not get left out in the cold, I think is a good one. And we have to make friction, and it feels like friction for a while. And we get some sparks, and then we have to put some tinder there, and we have to tend that fire until it's just going by itself. And that fire isn't going to start all by itself. So please, in this, this, this early time of session, tend the fire carefully. Tend the fire with devotion. Tend the fire with simple steadfastness. You, know, you drop the ball, pick it up. Gets unplugged, plug it back in. That's all you can do. That's our power, is that sincerity. Plug it back in, pick it back up. Make choices in how you practice session in accord with your heart's aspiration. That's what sincerity means.